Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a very special episode of Books, Books, Books. Today, I'm in conversation with celebrated and much-loved Australian writer Kate Grenville about a cause close to her heart and to mine, climate change, and what we as concerned citizens can do about it. In particular, in Kate's case, what writers can do about it. Kate has founded a group called Writers for Climate Action, and we're going to be talking a little bit about that group today, also about more broadly, the role that artists and in particular writers can play in relation to contemporary social issues and in particular in relation to climate change. Kate needs no introduction, but I'm going to give you a brief one anyway. Uh, I'm delighted to say she's been a guest on Books, Books, Books before, where we talked about her last novel, A Room Made of Leaves, the prize-winning fictionalised version of the life of Elizabeth MacArthur, long-suffering wife of John MacArthur. Over the course of a 40-year career in writing, Kate has published 17 books. These include several novels, including The Idea of Perfection, Dark Places, and the much-loved Australian classic, The Secret River, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, adapted for the stage, and made into a popular TV miniseries. All of Kate's novels have been published internationally. She has also published a biography of her mother, three books about the writing process, and a book called The Case Against Fragrance, which is probably self-explanatory. In 2017, Kate was awarded the Australian Council Award for Lifetime Achievement in Literature in recognition of her extraordinary contribution to Australian literature. Kate received the Order of Australia in 2018, and in 2020, A Room Made of Leaves won the Christina Stead Prize for Fiction in the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards, It was also shortlisted for several other major literary awards. Kate's most recent book is Elizabeth MacArthur's Letters, published by Text, and that's an edited selection of the letters which formed the basis of A Room Made of Leaves, uh, also published by Text. Kate, welcome back to Books, Books, Books. Thanks. It's lovely to be here. Now, let's start by talking about this group, Writers for Climate Action. What made you decide to put together this group? Oh, a sense of desperation that climate did not seem to be on the agenda for the upcoming election. Uh, I mean, it's there in the fine print, but to me it is all other issues are underpinned by the need for a reliable climate. Uh, We can worry about um, cost of living, refugees, um, corruption, the place of women, almost all of those are going to be made infinitely worse in a world where uh, there's either too much rain or not enough, bushfires, people are going to be displaced, things are going to break down, as as we've seen in miniature in Australia. So to me, uh, it was a sense that what can I possibly do? I thought about volunteering for a political party or a candidate, 
Um, and I thought, yes, but is that actually the best use of my time? And I thought, look, I'm a writer. Maybe there's some particular thing that I can do with that position. Kate, is it your sense a few weeks into the campaign that at least the major political parties are still not talking enough about climate change and what needs to be done? It astonishes me that they're not. I mean, they do mention it. Um, uh, Labor much more than the Greens. Uh, um, sorry, Labor much more than the Coalition. Uh, but even among Labor, uh, it seems to me that the, the the people are being invited to think of their own narrow short-term self-interest when they vote. That's something we've been taught to do, I think, over the last 30 years. Uh, if you go back a bit further in history, you don't have to go that back that far, you find that uh, politicians were appealing to what Paul Keating used to call the vision thing. Now, it seems to me that's a major change in the culture that we no longer think about the vision thing. So in this election, as in most, it's appealing to uh, specific groups, uh, particularly marginal voters, of course, um, about things that are of immediate, like this year, kind of relevance to them without saying, listen, that's good, fine, but let's step back and look at the big global picture. One thing I think that's interesting in Australian politics is that, unfortunately, I would say, the issue of climate change has become so highly politicised. It's not like that in most other countries. And even in the UK, people make the point that back in Margaret Thatcher's day, she was talking about the environment and about the climate and what needed to be done. And even under a, a a long many years of conservative government in the UK, the issue is just not politicised. There's there's agreement about the problem and that things need to be done. The debate is about what needs to be done. Why do you think it is that in Australia, unlike most other countries, the issue has been so politicised and, and has caused such polarity of views? Look, I think there'd be many factors, but a big one is that we are a coal-producing country and a huge amount of our... Uh, sort of national income is based on exporting coal and, of course, now gas. Um, that means that there are a huge number of people whose living still depends on digging up fossil fuel, uh, which obviously gives a, gives a motive for um, those people who would like to go on, you know, the fossil fuel industry uh, to harness that as a, and weapon, weaponise basically that factor. What is your aim? What would you most like to achieve by getting this group of writers together and setting up this organisation? Look, my, my, my goals are, are, you know, fairly modest because I think, you know, I'm modest about my own abilities. I am so the wrong person to be doing this. I don't do social media. And basically what this writers, writers group is about is spreading the word on social media Basically, I would like people to open their feed of whatever social media they follow and think, oh, there's Matt Riley on this list. There's Mem Fox on this list. There's John Kutzia. There's Tom Keneally. Um, there's Sophie Laguna. A huge range of writers. And I want them to say, oh, wow, I really like Sophie Laguna's work. I think she's wonderful. Now, she, she thinks that we should do something about climate action. Gee, maybe I should have another think about that. So that's the extent of my 
my desire. I mean, we know from psychology that the best way to change people's minds is to suggest to them that all the people around them, particularly people they like or respect, think a certain way. You know, we are herd animals to a very great extent and the influence of other people is probably the most powerful effect on us. It's certainly much more powerful than any arguments about, you know, carbon dioxide or anything like that. People just glaze over within seconds. I've seen it a thousand times. So what I would hope is that, I mean, the 60-odd the, the writers on the list, and it's growing every day, um, many of them are on social media. So I'm hoping that they will post, and we now have a Twitter site, um, and that it will get out beyond the beyond the, the circle of the converted, which obviously all the writers on the list are, and probably most of their immediate circle are also converted. But the magic of social media is supposed to take that message then into other. So, look, that's my perhaps slightly naive hope. Mm. But it, it began from a very specific moment, uh, which is that I was talking to a woman who is not a climate change denier. She wouldn't call herself that. Uh, but she's um, she's not sure, hesitant, I suppose you'd say, climate action hesitant. Uh, she's not sure if the problem is big enough. She's she's inclined to say, oh, what can Australia do, you know, per capita, blah, blah, blah. You know, what, what effect can we make globally? All those kind of rationalisations. So she's not, she's not completely impervious to being persuaded. And in the same conversation that I had with her about that, in which I, I didn't try to argue with her because I don't think that does any good with these things, but she was raving about a particular writer, right, you know, couldn't stop talking about how wonderful this writer was, how, how much she admired and respected her and adored her work. And I thought, okay, this, and that's the moment where this really began, the moment where I thought, okay, if writers are respected and liked like that by people like this, it might be possible to just put the two things together and make something happen. You make the point, and it's clear from the list of writers, that they're, they're writers who write in all different genres, genres. Some of them are fiction writers, some of them are non-fiction writers, some of them are crime writers, some of them write literary fiction, some of them, for example, Ali Eckerman, a a poet. I mean, some of the other names that I listed that will be familiar to listeners, Helen Garner, Tony Birch, Anita Heiss, Charlotte Wood, Ashley Hay, editor of Griffith Review, Anna Thunder. I mean, it seems that you do have a really broad cross-section of writers. How do people find out? If there are people listening now who are writers who want to join your group, how do they do it? They should go on the website, which is called writersforclimateaction.com pretty straightforward. Uh, and at the bottom of that, there's a Gmail address where they can write in and the team will, you know, will put them on the list. Okay. So we'll add that website onto the uh, the show notes for this page, for this episode. Kate, what I thought was interesting is you make the point of saying you're not asking voters to vote for any particular political party, but you're asking them to put climate first when they vote. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, look, it seems to me that people make all sorts of decisions about which which party is going to do most good. Assuming that you're, a, you know, you want climate action, people can sort of, uh, you know, legitimately disagree about which party is most likely to do most good. Um, and I wanted to remain. I wanted the group to 
to remain kind of agnostic so as, first of all, to bring in a lot of people who would be uncomfortable linked to a particular political party. Writers, as it says on the website, writers don't tend to be joiners. We are very independent souls. And so I thought, okay, if I want some of the names that I would like on this list, it has to be absolutely apolitical. That's absolutely basic. Um, because then you get, uh, you know, I mean, you can, you can vote for many different people and feel that you're doing the best for climate change. So really all I'm saying is have a look at your local candidates and in the case of the Senate, your state candidates, have a, little, have a look at their policies and a think about it. And instead of putting, for example, cost of living as your first criteria in voting, um, put climate because cost of living will sky, you know, will go through the roof, obviously, if climate change is not controlled. And we've already seen examples of that, haven't we, in light of the recent horrendous flood that there's been an immediate cause effect that the price of food has gone up. Exactly. That's right. Bushfires likewise. And, you know, it makes sense. If it's raining either too much or not enough, uh, the dirt is not going to produce the food on which we absolutely depend. It's as basic as that. Kate, your site suggests that there are other things that people can do. Would you like to talk a little bit about that, people who feel strongly about climate change and, and want to do something other than just wring their hands? Yes, wringing your hands is probably the, the least useful um, thing to do. Um, look, when you've, when you've decided on a party or a candidate that you think will actually do some effective good, um, to volunteer for them is a fantastic thing. All of those parties and candidates need people to speak up for the climate on a, on, in all kinds of ways, uh, door knocking, uh, cold calling, but also less um, confronting things. Um, every political group needs a whole lot of people in the background just doing, you know... Um, kind the of grunt work. The grunt work, Yes. Um, and then handing out how to vote cards on election day is an is an important is an important thing. A surprising number of people make up their minds on the spot. Mm. I've had amazing arguments in voting lines when I've handed out how to vote cards for certain parties. Uh, it amazes me how people, even at that last moment, are engaging you in discussion and quite often abuse. So um, even something as simple as handing out a how to vote card might just make a slight difference. So that's one thing. All of those people also need money. It is an absolute disgrace that elections are based very much now on how much money you have to spend. A donation to the group that you think is going to do most good in your area um, is always going to be good. But I think mostly it's about spreading the word in a, in a quiet, non-confrontational way um, to just make it clear to people what you believe. If those people like you and respect you, they'll they'll just have a think about it. They'll think, oh, okay, that's a person I've known for 30 years and, you know, they're not a left-wing rat bag. Uh, you know, they might be a, you know, in, in every other way, they may be a very conservative person. So I think that, that thing of the influence of one's quiet um, setting an example can't ever be underestimated. I think it's a, it's a huge a hugely influential thing to do. Two points I'd just like to make about that. The first about volunteering, what you've said about volunteering on election day is obviously critically important, but something that I'm hearing as well is the importance of uh, volunteering 
during pre-polling. And I heard on the radio an extraordinary statistic that about 31% of people are going to vote before the election. So if you are wanting to hand out how to vote cards for whichever party you support, don't leave it till election date. Hop on their website and see if you can get out there. In terms of talking to people and everybody, nobody wants to ram their views down anyone else's throat. But I will just give a plug for somebody who I interviewed last year on this program, Rebecca Huntley, social researcher who has an excellent book called How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference. It's published by Alan and Unwin. There's an episode in this podcast where I interviewed Rebecca about that book. And it is a basically a guidebook, a practical guidebook to just what we're talking about. How do you talk about climate change without offending people, making them angry, looking like you're virtue signalling, trying to ram your ideas down their throat. So again, people listening, if you want to get a bit of an idea or some hints on how to talk to those around you and maybe try to bring them around to your point of view, I, I would really recommend that book. Kate, I want to talk to you a little bit generally because it's something I'm really interested in about the role of artists and then we'll come to the role of writers. But let's start with the role of artists more generally in relation to contemporary social issues. Do you think that artists have a role to play in stimulating debate, in um, stimulating and encouraging conversation around important contemporary social issues, of which, of course, climate change is one of the most pressing? I do. I think that um, in this age of, um, you know, celebrity culture, um, more than more than ever before, I think artists, uh, you know, artists can now reach into uh, every home via social media. Um, and I think that even if people, are, there's still a kind of recognition that artists, what what we do is to step back from the immediate nose pressed to the glass uh, sort of here and now of lived experience. You know, life rushes past. Artists of all kinds, their whole, our whole thing is to step back and sort of get a bigger view. So no matter what people might think even about an individual artist, I think there's a recognition that, that we do something different in our lives and it can seem a bit... Uh, airy fairy, you can dislike it, you can laugh at it, uh, but just the same. Here are people who are giving up their lives for some big attempt to find meaning and coherence in what moment to moment really makes no sense. That is life. You gave a speech some years ago, a wonderful speech called "Artists and Climate Change," and in that talk, I should say rather than speech. You speak very powerfully about your own personal experience, about coming across, let's call it a work of art, a sculpture, as you're walking around Canberra one day. Can you tell us a bit about that sculpture, what it was relating to and what the impact that work of art had on you personally? Okay. Uh, I don't know if it's still there. It may be, but it's a sculpture that consists of a lot of uprights of wood stuck in some grass on the lake, edge of Lake Burley Griffin. And what it represents is one of the boats that sank carrying refugees some years ago. Um, and I came up to it and I read the little sign about it that explained what it was. And I thought, oh, yeah, I know about all that. I, I you know, I understand so intellectually, I thought, okay, yes, I'm with you, terrific. 
And then I walked over to it and I stepped inside the pieces of the uprights that represent the dimensions of that boat. I think it was 20 metres for 399 people. Oh, thank you very much. I had forgotten that. But, you know, I can feel myself goosebumping even remembering that moment. I stepped inside, I looked around, and suddenly it was not just an intellectual sort of rational understanding. It was a visceral, emotional understanding of what those posts represented. Uh, Yeah, I feel quite shivery even now. That's the power of art. It gets under the radar of our rational beings. Uh, We need our rational beings too, but there's a part of our experience that can only be understood in that absolutely sort of primitive emotional response. And I think that's what art, that's what art has to offer. Uh, you know, it, it, it may not, um, I think art doesn't necessarily need to talk explicitly, although that particular piece of art did, about a sort of a social issue. But I think in a general way, it, it triggers a part of our sensibility that nothing else does. Well, actually, there is one other thing that triggers that part of our sensibility, I think, and that is nature. I think it was Flaubert, actually, who said that um, um, art, like nature, invites us to dream. I'm grotesquely misquoting, I think, but what he said, what he meant was that both of those experiences just tap into some part of our psyche, some very primitive reptilian brain part of our psyche, um, that's, that is actually going to um, impact the decisions we make much more than what we think we think. You spoke there about how art can create new circuits, that art can create new ways of thinking. And you said this, art is that powerful. It can change the brain. And I love this. We, a lot of us will have heard this quote before, but it's just such a great quote. You, you refer to Kafka. Just as Kafka famously said, A book is an axe for the frozen sea within us. Let's move now to the role of the writers, the creators of books, of course. What do you see specifically as the role of writers? I was going to ask about contemporary social issues, but let's focus specifically on the issue of climate change. What is the role? What is the obligation? What is the responsibility? What are the possibilities for writers on this, the defining issue of our generation? Look, I think every writer probably who feels anything about the need for climate action has thought, can I write a book kind of about climate action? And many people have, of course. There's a whole genre of uh, climate, climate books. Um, and that's one way to go. Um, I mean, the, the, the one that stands uh, perhaps as the leader of all of them is the Comet McCarthy book called The Road, which doesn't actually mention climate change. It's just some kind of apocalypse. But there could not be any more searing and, and sort of, uh, you know, heart-grabbing uh, narrative about what might happen in the breakdown of of, um, of, a, of a global climate, basically, um, the catastrophe that he mentions isn't isn't uh, isn't specified, but clearly the climate has broken down. Um, 
so that's one way to go. But, you know, Cormac McCarthy published The Road some, I don't know, 20 years ago, a long time ago. And it hasn't actually, the world has not, did not go reel back on its heels and say, oh, my goodness, gee, we'd really better do something about climate change. So good luck to those writers who do that. And there will be people who will be affected viscerally, emotionally by those books uh, and it will carry them then into thinking uh, about climate change. Uh, but I think beyond that, there's this, there's this larger thing that I mentioned earlier, which is that writers, unlike, say, visual artists, uh, most writers or many writers are very accessible to people who would not consider them any, themselves any kind of expert on art, whereas visual art, dance, maybe even theatre, they have that slightly, oh, gee, do I know enough to even walk into the art gallery kind of feeling. Uh, there is something very democratic about writing. It spans all those, all those different writers that you mentioned that are on the list, um, and they are all part of the great ecosystem, which... You know, anybody who can read or even anybody who can listen on an audiobook uh, will find some writers that speak to them. So that means I think our the responsibility of those writers is more indirect. It's not to necessarily kind of preach about climate change, although good luck to those who do it. It's just to say, look, we're people doing this very interesting stuff, which we hope um, will open a, a, a new kind of way of looking at the world, and at the same time, we are passionate about the need for climate action. So, you know, if you like our books, listen to what we say about climate action. There was one final thing I, I read that you'd said that writers can do, and that is you said it's up to us to become informed about the debates. We need to know what we're talking about. We are articulate people, and, and you said we need to be able to refute the arguments of the climate change sceptic in the supermarket. We need to be able to write convincing letters to the paper or to our MPs. And you said, I think we need to act on our beliefs in whatever public ways we can. You, you still stand by those views? Indeed, I do. Although having now had a few of those arguments um, in the supermarket, I had one in the in the cafe of the National Library of Australia in Canberra, in fact, with a, 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 a fellow researcher who was researching, uh, you know, anti-climate change stuff, we very nearly came to blows. I mean, it became, we both pushed our seats back. He said something very provocative to me. I said something provocative back to him. We pushed our chairs back and there in this very sedate little cafe in the National Library, surrounded by, you know, ladies who lunch, this man and I looked at each other and we were within a, 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 a nanosecond of bopping each other. Mm. <laughs> so I'm not so sure about that. I think we have to be more cunning. Mm. Uh, silence and cunning, as some great writer said. Um, it's a bit like talking to anti-vaxxers. Mm. You will only confirm them if you disagree too, uh, too violently. And, of course, rational argument, uh, it's probably not going to convince anybody. It might, if they're already convinced, it will give them more reasons for being convinced. If you know about the great oxygenation event, which is where um, eons ago our atmosphere became full of enough oxygen for us to breathe, and we are now simply reversing that by uh, burning fossil fuels. If you even actually know what fossil fuels actually mean, why are they called fossil fuels? You know, we should be taught this at school. Um, 
but uh, yeah, it's to be informed so that if you happen on somebody who is um, accessible via reasonable argument, you will have the, the facts and figures there. Kate, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for forming Writers for Climate Action. I hope that the group continues to grow. I wish you all the very best with it and thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you, Nicole. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbody.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Bye.